can have your Bibles handy, uh, we come to part two of our topic, Chastening Children, in this brief family series, hiatus between Genesis 11 and 12. Last time we were together, we laid the foundation for the consideration of four principles of chastening that we find in the scriptures. These are rooted in how God deals as a father with his children, all in that Hebrews chapter 12 passage uh, that we read last time, Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 11, where we see this idea of exhortation unto accepting the chastening hand of the Lord in our lives, knowing that the chastening hand of the Lord, as a father chastens his son, is a reflection of God's faithfulness, not of God's contempt. It is a reflection of his love, not of his rejection or of his hatred. And in the same way that we recognize that a father chastens his child in love, so too God chastens us in love. And that was, that was the idea. Every principle that we're drawing about the nature of what it means to be a parent, we draw from from how God deals with us because God is the perfect father. He is the perfect parent in that sense. And as he deals with his children, so too we are called to deal with our children. So last time we were together, we, we were thinking through the, the, the object, right? That we seek unto not just reforming the actions, not even specifically reforming the actions, but that with our children, we are seeking to reach their hearts. The question that we ask when we see an action that comes out of a child, out of anyone really, is what is happening behind the scenes? What is happening in one's heart that is compelling said action? And we talked about the fact that as, as a very young child, when they're not ne- yet talking and uh, um, when they're just walking and, and then in, in those early years of even them talking and walking, uh, at that point we are seeking to set consistency and discipline. Uh, we're at that point not able to really talk with them about what's happening in their hearts, but it does not take very long before you can begin to see Trends in their lives. Trends that are manifesting in actions but that are rooted in something deeper. Selfishness, pride, anger, frustration, anxiety, fear. And instead of just stopping the action, what we want to do is drive down to what is causing the action because Jesus taught us That a good tree brings forth good fruit and an evil tree brings forth evil fruit. That as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That when something is coming out of me, it has started somewhere inside of me. And so what Jesus called to the Sadducees and the Pharisees was, clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will also be clean. Lest we be those who the outside of the cup is clean but the inside is filthy. Because we've done a good job of disciplining our actions, but inside we're a mess of sin. And so we, we see the way that we're going to raise our children, the mindset of raising our children, as an extension of the way that God raises us. And of course, it also helps us learn more about us. I've learned more about myself and about God's dealings with me from being a father than I can even express. Because as I see what my child does to me, I say, oh, that's what I'm doing to God. That's, as as I try to help my children solve their own problems, I say, oh, that's what's happening inside of me. So that we can all apply these lessons to our lives, which is why I say, if you're not a parent, don't check out on me. Because there's a lot to learn here. So today we come to these actual strategies for chastening children. 
Still don't check out on me. There's going to be something for everyone here. Chastening is a broader word, right? That speaks both to discipline and to training. Recognizing the different methods that God uses to draw us to his children unto obedience. And then seeking to duplicate those in our own lives, those methods in our own lives. Chastening can be a positive or negative thing. You can use positive reinforcement as a part of the discipline and training process in the same way you can use negative reinforcement as a part of the discipline and training process. And last time we were together, we spoke of four these four principles. First, chastening through correction, and that is the process of compelling repentance. Second, chastening through punishment. This is the process of teaching consequences. Third, chastening through rebuke. This is the process of correcting mistakes. And then finally... Chastening through exercise. This is the process of growing character. And there's a place for all four of these in the lives of raising our children. There's a place for all four of these in the way that God deals with us as children. And we want to be able to identify them. And children take note of this. You want to be able to identify them as well. Not just because you are the next generation of parents. But because the faster you are able to align with what your parent is doing the easier it is for you. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week when we talk about relationship. So it is incumbent upon our children, our parents, to make it clear what we are doing, as God does with us, and then as children to identify what our parents are doing and to align with it as unto the Lord. For indeed, the faster we know what God is doing in our lives and align with it, the better it is for us. So let's begin with... Each of these in turn, beginning with correction, uh, chasing, excuse me, through correction, the process of compelling repentance. We spent much time last time speaking about the fact that when a child does wrong, there are two distinct factors at play. First, what is in their hearts, then their actions. And, of course, we focused on the heart last time, the why of their actions, what is compelling their actions. But in the principle of correction, and again, don't, don't get hung up on the words. You might say, Pastor, I could swip, 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 switch a couple of those words around. Go for it. I'm, I'm, these aren't, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to settle some sort of law here as it, as it relates to the way I'm using these words. I've simply put down principles, right? So don't, don't get hung up on the words here. But the principle of correction, there's... Um, the, the thing that's... Well, okay, so we, we talked last week about the why, the compelling of their actions. In the principle of correction, there's another factor of their heart that you're looking for. And that factor is that when they have done wrong, you're looking to bring them to a place where in their heart they are ready and willing to acknowledge their wrong and repent of their wrong. In the scriptural terms, it's confession... And repentance. Confession is an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Repentance is a change of mind which brings about a change of action as it re- refers to that wrongdoing. A change, a turning from. Where they in their heart acknowledge that they have done wrong and they align with their parents. And punishment itself does not necessarily accomplish this purpose. As we'll talk about next... Punishment is intended to mete out consequences for the wrong. Sometimes a child will need correction unto repentance before the punishment can take place. 
with other children, you might actually have to draw the, the consequence of the actions first before, before the repentance will take place. There's different children who respond in different ways. The punishment incentivizes future obedience, draws the connection between action and consequence. Its focus, however, is far more outward than inward. The idea of correction, though, is slightly different, as I'm using it. The idea of correction is not necessarily curbing behavior, but it is realigning the heart of the child with the heart of their parents and of God. This type of correction serves two purposes in the heart of a child. First, it brings them to a place of acknowledgement of their sinfulness, the acknowledgement of the sinfulness of the action that they've committed Namely, and often primarily, disobeying mom and dad. Maybe there's a, a heightened layer of sinfulness, right? If my child strikes their sibling, they have both disobeyed mom and dad and they have struck their sibling. There are other times where the only thing that they have done wrong is disobeyed mom and dad. If I tell them, please don't, uh, don't uh, st- put your feet on the couch. It is not intrinsically sinful to put one's feet on a couch, but it becomes sin to them when they disobey their parents, right? And so there are, there are these ideas. But what we are doing is we're seeking to draw them to a heart of acknowledgement that they have offended the standard. And second, it helps them see that what they did is something that is, if, 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 if it is wrong itself, what they have done is not just wrong before their parents and thus wrong before God, but also harmful. And even if it is just disobedient to their parents, they have not just wronged their parent, they have wronged God by virtue of wronging their parent. And they have, if they put their feet on the couch, they haven't harmed their sibling. But what they have done is harmed their soul. They have, they have brought themselves to a place of separation with their parents and with God through the action that they've committed. And the idea of correction is that we're seeking to make them aware of, and if at all possible, bring them to an acknowledgement of the fact that what they did is in fact harmful to them. And with any given child, as I've said, this process of bringing about repentance can be very different. I have some children that cannot be reasoned with. You cannot talk to them about these things. I could talk until I'm blue in the face, but when they do the wrong and they get caught, they harden themselves, and the only thing that softens them is the punishment phase, is when I give them the spanking. And at, the, at that point, they bring, it brings about in them a softness of heart whereby I may then start to discuss with them, uh, um, especially with, with uh, the, my younger children, the ones that are you know five and under. Sometimes they're so stuck on, I'm about to get a spanking, that they can't, they're not listening. And, and you can try to calm them down all you want, but until they get the punishment they know is coming to them, they're not going to hear anything else. And so you get the punishment over with, you curb the behavior, you draw the line between choice and consequence, and now let's talk with them. My, I have other children, however, where it goes the other way. I desire to reason with them first because the way it is in their hearts is if I bring about the consequence of the action first and foremost, then they actually have a tendency to harden their heart to me and get angry. And then what I have to do is I have to go through the process of saying, why are you angry? What, what, what is it about what just happened 
that causes you to be angry? And they say, because you gave me a spanking. And then I say, no, you asked for a spanking. And they say, no, I didn't. I say, yes, you did. And they say, how did I ask for it? Because you did the thing that you knew was wrong and you know the consequences of that. Therefore, you chose to get a spanking. So why are you angry at me? I didn't choose to get a spanking. You chose to get a spanking. And then we have to reason through the process and then we can start working through the repentance. So I find that if I reason with them first and I say, now remember what's happening here. You did this thing. Was it wrong? Yes, it was wrong. Did you choose to do it? Yes. Did you know the consequences? Yes. So did you choose the consequences when you chose to do the thing? Yes, right? And then we draw that line. So my, my children cannot necessarily all be approached the same way in this regard. And they can be. But, but I find that there's a way that I can approach them that will make it a little bit more of a streamlined process with certain ones. And I could do it the same way with all of them, but then I'm going to have some whose hearts are hardened and I'm going to have to do some more work. Or I can strategize how it is that I can best bring about a mindset of repentance. And then we can talk about punishment after that. So there are a number of times where a child comes to you and you have to bring them to this repentant place. But then, especially as they get older, you're going to find a third scenario. Maybe it is that they harden their hearts beforehand and you have to deal with the punishment first. Maybe it is that you have to deal with the repentance first and then the punishment. But there is a third category, and that's the child that comes up and confesses their own sin. And when a child confesses their own sin, they are already at that place of repentance. You don't have to bring about repentance in their heart. You don't have to draw them to a place of repentance because they've, they, they have come there themselves. And that's, I mean, that's the goal, right? That's what you want. You want to, to get to the point where they are coming to you and acknowledging their own fault and making it right because they feel the strain of relationship between themselves and you, themselves and God on the basis of their actions. And they want to proactively take it into their hands to correct that relationship and to be right. And in that case, you don't have to bring about repentance because repentance is already there. But you do want to have this mindset in your mind of repentance so that you can know, do I have to bring it about? Do I not have to bring it about? And bringing about repentance can come in, in various ways. With some, it is reasoning with them. With others, it is simply spanking until, they, until their, their, their will is broken. Not their spirit, but their will. Different children are different. They need different things. But the goal is the same. And the first goal of chastening, correction, bringing them to a place where we are compelling in their heart repentance. Regardless of how you bring it about, however, that's very child dependent. What you are looking for is a spirit in that child of softness to your words and your actions toward them and an open acknowledgement of their wrongdoing. And if I may stress a tactic here, which I have found invaluable, I very strongly encourage you, parent, to not be satisfied with your corrective chastening until your child has, once they can speak, verbally admitted that what they did was wrong. There's that old adage that says, confession is good for the soul. And it's true. So that if your child took the cookie and you caught them, or you smelled it on their breath, or you saw the crumbs on them, or they've got chocolate streaked all over their face... Work with them to the point where they say from their mouths, and of course we're talking about children that can understand and speak here. You're not going to, you know, my, my, my littlest is not going to be able to work with her until she can say this, right? She, she can't speak yet. 
but with the children that, that can understand and speak, until they say with their mouths, I have done wrong. I stole a cookie. It did not belong to me. That is sin. I have sinned. I was naughty, whatever word you use to express negative actions. The reason why is because the human heart, and this is not just a child thing, the human heart hates to openly acknowledge their sin. We're generally okay alluding to it. Did you do wrong? I can handle a head nod. Did you do wrong? Yes. I can even handle that. I might even be able to say I did a bad thing. But to actually name and acknowledge a sin is very difficult for the human heart. It's much more difficult for a man to say I struggle with lust than it is to say I watch pornography. It's the same thing in a sense, but one of them is much more cutting to have to say. To actually have to acknowledge that what I did is wrong. And to acknowledge the thing that I did. But it's very powerful in the human heart unto repentance. It's very powerful in the human heart to actually have to face what I've done, who I am, to acknowledge it. It's powerful in the heart of a child. I encourage you, whenever possible, to bring them to the place where they acknowledge their sin. And... That doesn't necessarily just mean, and it might mean that for your three and four-year-olds, repeat after me. But what you want them to do is you want them to say, say what you did. I did this. Say, was it sin? Yes. No. Yes, it was sin. Yes, it was sin. Those sorts of acknowledgments are powerful in the human heart. Not just for children. For us as well. And that's what we're talking about here is the human heart still, right? Bringing about a softening of a spirit through confession unto repentance. Now, a couple of more things to say about this before we move on. First, it has not been my experience that every chastening interaction has been successful to stir a repentant heart. Um, let's just think, think about you for a minute. Think about God's chastening hand with you. Not every action that God has done to bring about chastening in your heart has led to immediate repentance, has it? As a matter of fact, sometimes we're talking days, weeks, months, years, between when God began to teach us a lesson and when he finally broke our will in a certain area of our lives. Sometimes a child's heart will remain hard. You have sought unto that repentance with goodness. You have sought unto that repentance with punitive action, with, with, uh, with the rod. But their heart remains hard nevertheless. And the fact that is, your, your, your children aren't robots. They have a free will. They can harden that will. And doing so should come with a measure of consequences for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to persist in that moment every time until they soften their hearts. Sometimes there's just other things to do. There's other kids to think about. There's other things in the day. And you can't wait around for their stubborn heart to be brought into alignment. But you can set a template up for them to do so. Sometimes it's me saying, you know what, I've got to get back to work. I've got things to do. But I want you to sit here and, and, and I want you to get your heart right. When your heart's right, you can go. 
Or it might be, you know what, why don't you go do the things that you need to do, and while you're doing those things, I want you to be working on getting your heart right because we're going to come back to this later. All sorts of different ways that that might play out. And sometimes it's even, you can suspect as a parent, you know, I think that they're, I think that they're, they're, they're hardening their heart, but they're also doing what they need to do. They're, they're saying the things they need to say. So I'm just going to kind of let them. I'm going to give them some line. I'm going to let them run a little bit. And then a little bit later, I'll tug on that line and I'll see if they're, if, if they're ready yet. I'll start reeling them in a little bit. Always with the objective of bringing their hearts into reconciliation with their parents and with God. That's the objective. There are battles for the heart that your children may not relent for some time. And you'll have to prayerfully engage in different strategies to help your children understand what is happening in their hearts. Especially as they get older. Just as God does with us, right? And that's the template. You say, Pastor, what does it look like? What does it look like? What do the different methods look like? Well, we could spend all day talking about methods, but just think about what God does with you. Think about what your experience is with him. Think about the times that he's used his goodness to bring you to repentance. Think about the times that he's, he's had to drop the hammer on you. Think about the times where he's given you the extra, the extra grace and the extra time. Think about the times where he put up a wall and he said, nope, no extra time now. You got to make this it's time. It's time to make a decision this way or that way. Think about all of those things and allow those things to be your teacher. God is patient. He is gentle. He is clear in his expectations. He doesn't overload us at any given time. Have you ever experienced a a situation where you've had a major blind spot, a major flaw in your life, and God brought it up and you dealt with it and you said, wow, why didn't God bring that up five years ago? I was a Christian five years ago. Well, probably because he was working on something else. And God doesn't overload us, right? He doesn't drop it all in our laps at one time. Sometimes he takes us along a journey from one thing to the next. Let's get this fixed first, and then we'll fix that, and then we'll fix this, and then we'll fix that. Sometimes you can't even fix uh, C until you've fixed A and B. So instead of just trying to get C figured out with our children, let's start with A. When they got A, then we'll go to C is the goal, but we got to get through A and then through B in order to get to see. Be patient. We find an interesting reflection of God's character related to this idea in the prophecies of Jeremiah. Eleven times in the book of Jeremiah, there's a phrase that comes up, and that phrase is rising early. And it's connected with God's intentional reaching out to his children to call them into a right relationship with him through various prophets and various circumstances. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, we read this. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. God showed great long-suffering, helping his people come to the end of themselves and to trust in him. And he, was, he, he didn't just show great long-suffering, but he showed great initiative. Now, we know that God doesn't sleep. But the idiomatic idea of God rising early to reach out to his people is that he was on top of this. He was taking initiative. He was busy about the work of reaching out to his children and calling them unto himself. He took it upon himself. He bore the burden of softening the spirit of his people so that they might have a right relationship with him. And parents, 
You have, a, you, you have a responsibility here. It is you who is called to rise up early and reach the heart of your children. It is you who is called to identify what's going on in their hearts and to direct them into that which is right. It is you who is asked to do this thing for them because you are their parents. So God showed great long-suffering in this principle is the principle that I encourage you to think through. Not using God's long-suffering as an excuse for you to avoid the larger issues in your children's hearts for an extended time. Uh, you're, you're kind of being busy and lazy, and you say, well, God was long-suffering, so I'll just suffer my child a little longer in the idea of you're ignoring them. Don't do that. But understand that a process of reaching the heart is very different from a process of changing behavior. And yet we need to reach the heart, not just change behavior. Guide a children's heart. Don't just guide a children's actions. So first, be patient. Play the long game when necessary with your children's hearts. Second, remember that you may not always have time to work this kind of correction in any given chastening session, and that's okay. When 10,000 things are going on at one time and your child is misbehaving, there are times where you simply need to address the behavior and change the behavior and get along with your day. Now, that again, that can't be an excuse for parental laziness. If you're constantly kicking the can down the road, then that's just going to become a bigger, bigger problem. But far better to address a behavior when time is short than to just allow the behavior to persist because you don't have time to engage in the whole process of digging into your child's heart at that time. There is no formula, parent, for raising a child. We can't just run down a list of do's and of don'ts with our kids and trust that each one is going to come out fine on the other end. These are individual people. They have individual needs and they must be addressed individually. Each child must be individually loved, individually guided, individually considered, individually reached. And there is time to do it, as long as we're intentional. The hearts of our children are not won, nor are they lost in a day. It's a process of love, intention, time, consistency. And that brings us to the second principle of chastening. Chastening through, the word I'll use here is punishment. The idea here is the process of teaching consequences. The second principle is the one that we most often think of when we think about discipline. The process of meeting out consequences for actions. That when my child does something wrong, there is a natural consequence that takes place for that wrong, that you did something wrong and there is a consequence to that wrong. Teaching choices and consequences. Teaching sowing and reaping. Now, the Bible speaks to this idea directly in the Proverbs. Several verses that we read last week on the topic, we read again. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Again, that word betimes means in appropriate season. Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And then Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, which is perhaps the most, un most uncomfortable of the ones, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now, there's no question in the scriptures that the divinely ordained and advocated form of consequence for wrong in children is corporal in nature, what we often call a spanking. And this is a topic of great controversy in modern culture, and that for a couple of reasons. First, 
because we live in an affirmative culture, which is convinced that there is no negative reinforcement, the idea of punishment, that works better than the corresponding positive reinforcement, what we would call incentive. And we see this in society today, not just as it relates to children, but of course, the philosophy as it relates to children has naturally now extended to every part of society. So that now, even among criminals, we see a push toward a positive reinforcement structure rather than a negative consequence-based structure. And so that's one reason, is because our society has drifted in this way. Now, the second reason is because for generations... Parents have used the Bible's exhortation to physically correct their children as an excuse to take out their anger on their children, to exercise unhealthy control over them by means of physical suffering, and this is called child abuse. This is not discipline. And yet these have been often conflated, unfortunately, in the Christian church, as well as not just the Christian church, right? In... in, 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 Effectively, every culture has had a corporal punishment structure where there can be a conflating between the idea of proper corporal discipline of a child and abuse of a child. Now, of the first reason for the controversy, that idea of the the positive reinforcement culture, we can see quite clearly from our society what happens when punitive measures are scaled back. When the human heart has in it no fear of true punishment for breaking a law, it does not have a fear of breaking that law. If criminals know they will not be prosecuted for stealing, they will steal. And there's no amount of positive reinforcement, no amount of welfare, positive incentive and structure that has stopped these people from doing what they want to do. Because it's not just about the fact that they don't have enough stuff. It's not just about the fact that, they, that, that, that they, they, they lack food and they lack water and they lack clothing. It's about the fact that they want something that someone else has. It's about this idea that the Bible talks about called covetousness. And it's in every single one of us. And it dies hard in every single one of us. And it's only the Spirit of God that can overcome it in us. So that if we don't have a negative A punitive structure, no amount of positive incentive is going to stop people from coveting what they do not have. It is simply a part of who we are. And this tendency is just as real in the heart of a child. If a child knows that he will not truly be punished for his wrongs, then he's emboldened to do those wrongs. And never has a positive incentive structure, a structure only of rewards for good behavior, been enough to curb bad behavior in the heart of someone who wants to do bad things. And that is not to say that positive incentive structures do not have their place. Indeed, they have a very, very prominent place in the home. In a disciplined child, like with a disciplined society... Positive incentive structures encourage them to take further profitable steps to progress their development in ways that are unto excellence. So that once a person is under control, positive incentive structures compel them unto heightened levels of achievement. But if a child is out of control, just like if a person in society is out of control, they have to first be brought under control before positive incentive structures can actually be effective in their lives. 
Sin is a powerful motivator. When we say that the human heart is driven by incentives, well, many people that, uh, that, that, that see that, they say that we're only driven by incentives in the same way that an animal might be because they don't see us as having a soul. It's an evolutionary construct. But even for we who recognize that there is a spirit inside of a man and that there's more happening in a man than just stimulus and response... We recognize that incentives are important, but that we don't get to choose the incentives that someone else has in their heart. In other words, whereas we might say, wow, the incentive of getting out of an impoverished position would be enough for me to change my behavior and do what is right. For someone else, well, as the old adage goes, some people just want to see the world burn. You cannot incentivize that person to do right simply by positive incentives if one of the primary motivations in his heart is to do wrong. That is an incentive to him. And that incentive might be stronger than whatever positive incentives you're trying to give him. Sin is a powerful motivator, Christian. It feeds the most basic human attribute, self, flesh, sin, will. And if someone is being driven by a sinful motive, then the incentives in their heart of that motive coming to fruition will be much greater than any positive incentive that you can offer him societally. And it's the same with our children. Once our children are under control, once there is a general framework of discipline and of submission, Positive incentives have a fantastic place. But our children must be brought into a place of control. And that leads us to the second problem as it relates to uh, society and the idea of, of what, we call, what we would call a spanking or corporal punishment. We address the fact that for generations, parents have used the Bible's exhortation of physically correcting their children as an excuse to take out their anger on their children or to exercise unhealthy control over them by means of physical suffering. When we talk about spankings, we are talking about a child being brought to a place where you are causing pain without damage. Oftentimes we talk about being spanked on the backside because that's a very cushy area of of the human anatomy. We also have seen at various times uh, a a smack on the hand. Those sorts of ideas. Uh, A lot of times with my little ones, I'll use a flick on the hand as a means by which to help them understand and connect the dots between choice and consequence. These things are not, they, they are not causing damage, but they are causing pain. Hitting a child and causing them in the name of uh, pain, or excuse me, causing them damage in the name of discipline is not discipline, it is abuse. When we talk about spanking, we are talking about a reasoned and restrained response to an already established set of prohibitions. We are talking about a direct consequence to a direct action that has been established and made clear. Spanking is not intended to be an outlet for your anger, parents. Anger manifests in our lives when we feel as though we have been offended, when we, when we perceive an offense against us or against something or someone that we love. However, spanking is not supposed to be a response to offense against me. It is supposed to be a response against a pre-established standard. It is not an offense against me. It is an offense against a standard that I have set up. 
And there's a big difference between spanking someone because they have offended me and spanking someone because they have offended a standard. And that big difference will not only be in the manner in which I go about meeting out that consequence, but it will also be the spirit with which I give it. To that end, the parent has no reason to be angry at a child for their offense because your child did not offend you, your child offended a standard. Let's make that very clear in, in, in the minds of those. If, if you are going to pursue what the Bible says about, <coughs> excuse me, corporate punishment, corporal punishment, you need to have a mindset that says, I am not going to spank a child because they have offended me. I'm only going to spank a child when they have offended a standard that I have set up. If at any point in the discipline process you are angry, it's because you have taken personal offense to what your child has done. And that's natural, right? My child has done something. I've told them not to do it. They did it anyway. That is offensive. But the offense, the perspective that I need to carry into discipline is that the offense that I just witnessed unto which I'm going to discipline is not going to be the fact that they did not listen to me. It's that they offended the standard that I just set up. This is very important. When I get angry, when they have offended me, and I spank them because they've offended me, when my punishment is not about their offense of the standard that I've set, but it is about their defiance to me, in that state, I should not spank my child. Because doing so is likely to manifest a release of anger in an effort to avenge yourself on your child, which is what many parents throughout the years have done. They have avenged their frustration for their offense on their child's backsides. That is not spanking. Even if it does not leave a permanent mark, even if it does not bring damage, the spirit of that action parent is abuse not discipline. Instead, wait until you're no longer angry. Or, when you are certain, even in your anger, that your correction is completely separated from any feelings of anger or vengeance, and you are able to deal with the standard that has been broken, not the offense against me. And then complete the discipline. Far better parent for you to pursue a different form of punishment or none at all for a singular offense than for you to hit your child in anger or in personal vengeance. To do so is to abuse your child and also to reinforce in their hearts an idea both about the nature of violence and about uh, the, the, the response to offense and also about what is happening in discipline, a, a negative idea of discipline itself. And such actions can actually work against you in your desired goal to correct the heart of the child. Because beating a child, and I, we, we see the word beat here in the text, but we, we're defining it, okay? We're not talking about beat the way we would think of beating someone in our culture today when, when Proverbs uses the word beat, okay? It's talking about proper Punishment, as we see the trend and, and as we see it in Scripture. It's talking about the chastening hand of the Lord as he does to us, which is a loving, faithful chastening. It is not an anger and a vengeance against his own 
pride, uh, a, a, a vengeance to, to, uh, to deal with his, his own pride against our, our defiance. Such actions can work against the desired goal of correction in the heart of a child, working in them resentment, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, or encouraging them to solve their problems with violence. But when done properly, none of those negative effects will happen because your child will not see you abusing them. They will not see you hitting them because you're angry or you're offended or because they have pushed you over the line. Rather, they will see an objective consequence to an objective action. They breached a standard of behavior. They knew they breached the standard of behavior. They knew the consequence. They received the consequence. And it will do something very different in their hearts and their minds when it's done properly. In doing so, they will connect the punishment to their action rather than to my emotions. And this is so important, parent. More often than not, the worst part about me spanking my children, if I'm doing it right, is that I'm in a perfectly good mood and the last thing I want to do is to make my child cry. I've been having a good day. I love my child. I'm not angry at my child, but my child has broken the standard and my child needs to get a spanking. And that's hard. It's actually easier to give them a spanking when I'm angry. But that's not the time I ought to be doing it. But, you know, that idea that I'm in a perfectly good mood, I don't want to spank my child, but I'm going to do it anyway, that's invaluable to the process because my child knows that I don't want to spank them but also understands that I must spank them and then what they connect that spanking to is not anger, not offense. They connect it to love, to faithfulness, to consistency, to me doing what I've told them I'm going to do for their best good. That's the connection they forge in their heart if I do it properly. And with this being established, let's consider some principles of chastening through punishment. And then we'll talk about the power of these principles in the heart of the child. First, parent, make the lines of punishment clear with your children. I tell parents all the time that if you want to have a proper discipline relationship with your children... Be clear in your expectations and consistent with enforcement. Make it clear what things will end up with a spanking and the things that will end up with some other potential loss of privilege, something other than a spanking, because spanking isn't the only form of punishment, and not everything needs a spanking. Direct disobedience needs a spanking. Disrespect for mom and dad, spanking. Physically harming one of their kids or anyone else, spanking. Not finishing the task before a reasonably set time that I've made very clear to them, spanking. But elements of neglect, of negligence, of thoughtlessness, of you have a chore to do every day and you missed one day because of this or that, maybe not a spanking offense. Unless we're working on something specifically, right? Unless they forget every day. Now, now, now we've become a spanking offense. Minor outbursts of frustration, a, a visceral reaction to something that is, that is indicative of pride or selfishness in the heart, something that we're working on long-term but isn't a direct offense to a standard but more like just a, you need to calm down a little bit. Probably not a spanking offense unless it ends up in hitting someone or whatever it might be. Second, make sure that your enforcement, as I said, first, clearing your expectations. Second, make sure that your enforcement is consistent. 
When a line is crossed, deal with it as soon as possible. Again, there are times where timing isn't going to be right. When you're at the store with your child and you can't just spank them in the aisle. Most parents have some sort of code that language that they work there, with, uh, that where, where they, they, they have something to inform their child that their child has, in, has uh, broken a standard and that they can fully expect that that, standard, uh, that, that that breach of standard is going to give way to the natural corporal punishment when they get home. Parents hoping that by telling them that they have breached the standard that is going to help reinforce or correct the behavior immediately on the credit of the enforcement that is coming. If you're not consistent with following through, of course, then it becomes an empty threat. But this can help mitigate behavior. But you be as consistent in your enforcement as you possibly can. And this will have a huge benefit for you as a parent, but it will also have a huge benefit for your child. The one thing you want to avoid, parents, is a situation where a child is doing something spankable, you're telling them to stop and they aren't stopping, and with each round of disobedience, you are getting more and more frustrated until you finally had enough, and then you spank them. Every single parent in this room has done that, if you spank. Every single parent in this room has done that, where you, you know that you should have spanked them the first time and you didn't, and then you told them to stop again, and they didn't, told them to stop again. And it is not that each time you're saying, well, if they breach it one more time, I'll do it. It's you're getting more and more frustrated and more and more angry and more and more angry. And then they finally cross the line, and then the kid knows they crossed the line, and then you send them down to get their spanking or whatever the case may be. You want to avoid that. And this, let me tell you why. What you have done when you do that is that you have connected that punishment not to their actions but to your emotions which means the child will not directly associate the pain of the spanking with his disobedience. He will instead associate the pain of the spanking with your emotional state, meaning that in the future your child will continue to do wrong until he feels like he has pushed you to just before the limit. And he'll walk that line because they're very good at doing that. And they may back off when they see that line approaching. Because they know that mom, and mom or dad is about to cross an emotional line that is going to give way to a consequence. And then, you know, in theory, they back down. If you're ha and, and, and so, within, that, within that, that scenario, if you're having a bad day and your child knows you're having a bad day, they'll be better. If you're having a good day, they'll know they can push you a little bit farther. If you're being patient on a certain day, they'll push the line. If, they're not being, if you're impatient on a day, then they may not push as hard. But it's all connected to your emotions and not his actions. And this reinforces the idea that the standard, the action itself is not the problem, but only if you get caught or if you push past the tolerance of your authority. And then this will give way to the way that they interact with the government it will, invariably. It will also give way to the way that they interact with God. And you don't intend that. But it will be baked into them. How far can I push God's law before God pushes back? You don't want your child to do that. We don't want anyone to do that. What else it does? It also helps your child justify his own sin. Because in the heart of a child, what they can do is if, if, if you wait until your frustration crosses a line before you spank them, 
then what can happen in their heart, in their heart, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it, just like yours, their heart will begin to tell them this. Mom and dad can't control themselves and now I'm getting a spanking. Yesterday I didn't get a spanking when I did that. Today I am. Mom and dad are mean. Mom and dad are angry. Mom and dad, and they can, their heart can begin to build resentment against the parent because their heart is saying, this is inconsistent. They're doing this because they're angry at you. They're doing this because they don't like you. They're doing this because they reject you, not they're doing this because they love you. And if you give a wicked heart the ammunition, ammunition to think such a thing, it's going to take it. If my parent just weren't so angry, he wouldn't, I wouldn't have been spanked. And that undermines the lesson of the spanking, doesn't it? No longer are they saying, wow, if I had not done that thing, I would not have gotten spanked. Connecting choice to consequence. Now they're saying, wow, if mom and dad weren't so angry, I would not have gotten spanked. Connecting you, you're the one at fault in their heart now, not them. And it allows their heart to actually ignore their actions and focus on your actions instead. It allow, and, and we see this in society, right? What is society doing today? A guy does wrong, he gets arrested, and all that society's talking about is how the police officer did something wrong. Well, can we talk about the fact that this guy just stabbed someone? Nope, we can't talk about that. We can only talk about the fact that the police officer did something wrong. This is what happens in a society, in a heart, in anyone's heart, if we don't have a consistency of standard, of enforcement, and the like. Clear in your expectations, consistent with your enforcement. And the worst part about this scenario is that because the children, child relates themselves to God first in their lives by relating themselves to their parents, and this is where we all come in, Christian, the child might be predisposed to act this way toward God, to believe that God brings chastening only when he's really angry with me. And so I begin to misunderstand the chastening of God in my life. And I start to see the chastening hand of God as something negative in God's anger and rejection of me rather than seeing the chastening hand of God as an outworking of his love for me. And parent, maybe you've spent a lot of years struggling with that in your own life. That because of the way your parents disciplined you, you have had a hard time in your life orienting yourself properly to God's chastening. And maybe you can relate to the idea that you've had to work through the idea that, no, the chastening hand of God is a loving and a faithful chastening. That when things start going bad for you, you spent years wondering, why is God angry with me? Why does God hate me? Why is God so unhappy with me? Why, why, are all, why, why, why is God targeting me? Those feelings that are in you, that are in your heart, they're rooted in a misunderstanding of the character of God. Now, anyone can have this misunderstanding of the character of God. It's not just kids with bad parents or the parents that didn't do everything properly that can have this misunderstanding. But, parent, you can go a long way in helping your child understand what the Bible says about God chastening in love by the way you chasten your children. You can also go a long way toward crossing their wires. If they perceive that punishment is an outworking of anger, of emotional frustration, of rejection, or of vengeance. 
To the contrary, when we are clear, when we are consistent in our expectations, our children know what to expect. They know full well what will happen if they cross certain lines. They know what, they, what, they, what will happen to them. And when they do cross those lines, they'll have no one to blame but themselves because they knew what they, was going to happen when they crossed the lines. They crossed it anyway with their eyes wide open and they got what was coming to them. And this clarity and consistency will aid the Holy Spirit in his ability to convict their heart and to bring them to this place of true confession and true repentance because their sinful hearts can't justify shifting the blame for their punishment to their parents or their siblings or whoever because they know they did wrong. They know when they crossed the line and they know what they were going to get when they crossed that line. We have to hasten to the third principle here. I'm running out of time. Principle number three, chastening through rebuke. The process of correcting mistakes. Not every action our kids commit is good. But that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be punished. Children make mistakes. Children need to learn. And soft, loving correction, soft, loving rebuke can do much in the heart of a child to help them avoid the need to be punished to to face corporal punishment. And allow yourself to be a guide to your children's thoughts and actions through soft, loving rebuke. We live in a world that sees any criticism as attack. That if I say you're doing something wrong, or if I even question your choices, your motives, your actions, your intentions, even if it's a very benign way of doing it, you feel as though I'm judging you. I'm attacking you. When I'm in fact just trying to help you or trying to understand you. We do not get better if we can't disagree with each other. We do not get better if we can't question one another. We do not get better if we can't challenge each other. As parents, you ought to build this philosophy into your children. And when you first criticize something they do, maybe they colored a picture and they showed you the picture, and you say, it's beautiful. But you know what? You got outside of the lines here, here, and here. Now, there's a portion of our society that would say, don't tell them that. Tell them it was perfect. Tell them it's perfect just the way it is. Or I can tell them that they got out of the lines here, here, and here. And that's not because I hate them, but it's because I want them to do better. And I know they can do better. And I'm going to lovingly, carefully criticize what they have done, not reject what they have done. I'm not rejecting it. I'm still going to hang it on the fridge but I'm going to critique it so that I can encourage them to do better, so that I can keep them progressing, so that I can tell them that the goal is not to just color a pretty picture, but to make it something beautiful. It becomes an opportunity for chastening. And your child will be tempted when you do this to feel attacked, maybe to get angry to feel rejected. And it's up to us parents to create an environment in our home where criticism is appreciated and accepted, not made a, a cause of defensiveness or a frustration. To question what is happening in their hearts when they do get offended. as a part of this process is also the process we'll talk a little bit more about training but the process of they need to fail they need to lose they need to struggle 
I need to be able to look at my child and say, you did not do that as well as you could. And you can do better. And you should do better without them getting resentful or angry. That has to be trained into the heart of a child. So that when I rebuke them and they get angry, I say, why are you angry? Because you, you said I didn't do a good enough job. No, I said you could do a better job. There's a difference. Could you do a better job? No. Come now. If you'd have slowed down, if you'd have taken more time, if you'd have thought through it, could you have done a better job? Yes. Don't, is, is it all that bad of a thing that I want you to do a better job? Can you not see that as my love for you? My desire for you to be better? Let's build that into our children, parents. What is in them that causes them to react this way? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Time to get back to correction. The heart. Time to start working in what, what's happening in your heart, child. That causes you to not be able to handle correction. To not be able to handle rebuke. To not be able to be challenged or, or, or confronted or disagreed with. Questioned. Because all we're doing is helping them. And as you take that path of criticism, be sure that you're finding all, every opportunity possible to praise as well. Right? All criticism with no praise simply creates a very, very sad child. If I praise my child for all of the ways that they're doing well, I don't need to find fake ways to praise them when they're not doing well. Because your children all have manifold ways that they're doing well. You've just got to look for them. You've got to be aware. Your child dresses themselves in the morning. They did a good job. They match. Everything looks good. You don't have to send them back. You did a good job this morning. Everything looks good. You're well kept. You did that all by yourself. I'm pleased. Thank you for shutting off the lights upstairs. I'm pleased. Thank you for clearing the dishes when you were finished at the table. I'm pleased. Your children need to know when you're pleased. And if you tell them regularly when they do well, then, they have an, then you have the currency to be able to help them get better through rebuke. This gives your children emotional strength. You'll help them become better, stronger. You're not heaping on them empty affirmations, but you're affirming them when it's worth it. Your children will have confidence that if you say something is well done, they know you're not lying to them just to make them feel better, but that when you say it's well done, they walk away saying, if dad said it's well done, it's well done. I did a good job. Because if it had not been well done, he would have told me. In love. And this amplifies their accomplishments to a whole other level. And it gives them something to strive for when, dad, when they hear dad say, well done. Where did we learn that principle? Well, because there's coming a day where I want to hear that from my heavenly father, right? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. That's what I'm going for. That's what I'm aiming for. That's incentive, isn't it? But I know that God's not going to tell me well done if I haven't been, if, I, if it's not well done. So I'm going to do it well. I'm going to strive for that. Because my Father in Heaven's not going to lie to me. And I want to hear well done. That leads us to our final principle of chastening this morning. Chastening through exercise. The process of growing character. 
Like correction and punishment, which kind of go hand in hand, rebuke and exercise kind of go hand in hand. The idea here is that you're raising your children on purpose. You know your children. You understand their tendencies, their propensities, their strengths, their weaknesses. You're helping them excel in their strengths, and you're helping them strengthen their weaknesses. Have spiritual, emotional, and physical goals for your children, parents. Help them learn skills. Put them in appropriate situations where their minds and hearts will be tested. The only way muscles grow is by working them. And the process of working muscles is not enjoyable. Because you work your muscles and you get done with a day where you know you've worked your muscles and you, what's going through your mind and probably on your lips is, I'm going to be sore tomorrow. And that idea of being sore is not pleasant but what soreness is, is it is micro tears in the muscles that when they repair, make the muscles stronger. So that when a person has created a lifestyle of exercise, they actually feel that burn, they feel that tear, that pain, and they interpret it in their mind as a good thing. That's me getting stronger. And we can do the same with our children. That when my child is being asked to mature emotionally, spiritually, or physically, they don't enjoy the fact that dad just asked them to stack all those cords of wood. But what they can do is they can say, and we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, because I know the love that my parent has for me, I know this is going to help me. And so they can interpret the pain and the frustration and, and the weakness and the struggle, the problem solving and, the, and all that comes with it. They can interpret that as love. Not resentment or laziness on the part of the parent. Nope. My parent is trying to make me better. Stretching me. Growing me. Last week in our times together, we considered Hebrews 12. Just briefly. The end of that passage in verse 11, we read this, Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Our youngest daughter is working her way toward the walking phase of life. And in that phase, she's pulling up on things and she's falling down and she's bonking her head and she's... Uh, bottoming out on, on, on the, the, the spindles of chairs and all sorts of things. She's getting stuck. And the easiest thing for my daddy heart to do is to always help her up when she falls and to always get her out of the situation when she gets stuck. But though that's the easiest thing for my daddy heart, maybe the best thing for my daughter is if she got herself in that place, she can get herself out. If she fell down, she can pick herself up. And, of course, I'm watching over her to make, that she's, make sure that she's safe. She's not going to fall off of, down the stairs. <laughs> she's not going to fall out of her high chair. But maybe I don't need to rescue her because maybe those hardships are the only way that she's actually going to get better. Maybe the only way her muscles are going to grow is if she has to face the pain of pushing up, pushing her body up with her own legs. Maybe the only way she's going to learn how to balance is by plopping on her diaper a bunch of times. So my daddy heart just has to let her struggle. Just has to let her fuss. Just has to let her fight until she gets it 
and then I can rejoice with her. You know, it's not fun to go through hard times. Children, it's not fun to be picked last in the game. But there's an important lesson in life about being picked last. There's a lot of lessons you can learn from being picked last. It's not fun to try and to fail. But there's some important things in life that come from trying and failing. It's not fun to be compelled to dedicate myself to a task and to have to slog through that task in the early days of figuring out how to do it. But I'll never know the reward of perseverance if I'm never compelled to push through that task. And as parents, we're tempted to want to rescue our children. It's called, I don't know if this generation is called that anymore, but it was called helicopter parenting for a while, right? But the best way to the fruit of spiritual maturity is through the pain of spiritual hardship. The best way through the fruit of emotional stability is through the pains of emotional hardship. And the best way to the fruit of physical capability is through the pains of physical hardship. Now, thank God that if you do this in your children, the pains of emotional hardship is that they have to go through the fact that they worked hard on a, color, on a coloring page and then their, their brother spilled his orange juice on it. And now they, all, that, all that effort has gone to waste. And then we talk about how to get past it. And they can deal with those things when they're there. And, and they don't have to learn those hardships when they uh, hired the wrong guy to help them with their house and he burned it down while they were building it, right? Far better to learn some lessons about the fact that you need to put some guardrails against other people's failures, not your own, in life when, when it's, it's your coloring page. So we can help them with the ideas of the... Because... In, in, in reality, and we, we all know this, when a child is going through said emotional hardship to us, we say, wow, it's going to get a lot harder than that, kiddo. You better toughen up. But to them, that is emotional hardship at that phase in their life. And if we can help them deal with that emotional hardship at that phase, then we are putting them in a place where they can deal with the greater emotional hardships at other phases in life. So let's do that. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not fun to, for us to watch them have that hard time. But it's a part of the process. You can keep your children fed and educated. You can direct their behaviors. You can let them figure out the rest for themselves, spiritually and emotionally. You can hope that Pastor Wickler will get through to them. Or you can hope that their Bible reading will bring about the place where they'll just figure it out for themselves. And maybe they will. But how much better if they can be guided by the heart of their parents into the lessons that their parents know they need. Instructing them, testing them, stretching them, pushing them. It's going to take a lot of time, parents. It's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take forethought and planning and inconvenience and frustration. But the product will be a child raised on purpose into adulthood. One that can navigate this life, avoid the mistakes, orient themselves to truth in a way that will make them effective in society and for Christ, for the church, and toward those that interact with them. That's what we want. You can roll the dice. Your children can learn these lessons for themselves. But how much better if they could be guided by those whom, through wisdom and experience, can help them navigate those waters to the other side. How many years can be saved in their emotional development? How much heartache from lessons being learned the hard way? If we parents take upon ourselves the responsibility that we have been given to do these things for them. 
And your child might reject that wisdom. Your child might have to learn those things the hard way anyway. We've all done plenty of that. But God forbid that they have no other option but to learn the hard way because we as parents didn't chasten our children. Or because we as parents were afraid of our children. Afraid to have the necessary but uncomfortable conversations to prepare them for what they're going to face because we think that in doing so they're going to get angry at us or they're going to reject us. So I don't tell my children what they need to hear because I'm afraid that when I tell them what they need to hear they're not going to want to hear it anymore. Well, they're not going to hear it anyway if you don't tell them. So they might as well hear it. Don't be afraid to confront your children about their own deficiencies in fear that they'll reject you. As a matter of fact, you might just find that they'll love you for it. And so, in doing so, in fearfully not doing these things for our children, we leave them to be taught, encouraged, or otherwise guided by someone else. And if you're blessed and fortunate... They'll hitch their wagon to a church where somebody, some well-adjusted godly man or woman in the church will guide them through those things that you're not guiding them through. But far more likely, their peers, their boss, or God forbid the internet will be their guide. You don't want that, parent. You hold the first right of refusal as it relates to guiding your children into the path that they should go. Don't waste that. Takes the form of chastening. Chastening through correction. Chastening through punishment. Chastening through rebuke. Chastening through exercise. And as we apply this principle to our parents, notice I say principles, not rules. I'm going to keep saying that. Take these ideas, parent, and tweak them. Well, Pastor Wickler said this. Well, maybe Pastor Wickler doesn't know your circumstances and you need to tweak what I've said. Do that. Tweak what I've said. To your personality, to the personality of your children. I've given you some examples. That's from me. That's me, my personality. That's me, my children. It's not you. I haven't given you rules today. I've given you guide rails. Observe how God chastens his children and apply that to your life as a parent. That's all I'm telling you today. Man, I could have, could have saved you an hour. Observe how God chastens his children and apply it to how you parent. Do that. Take these principles, invest them intentionally into your children's lives. Raise them on purpose. Raise them for a purpose. As arrows in the hands of a mighty man, shape and fashion them so that you can shoot them into the lost and dying world and they can hit their target. And they can be effective. May we be balanced. May we be faithful. May we be intentional parents. With all of this chastening leading unto an end, and we're going to talk about that end next week. The end is relationship. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. But as we close, I want to broaden our perspective one more time. I said this isn't just for parents, and it's not. Christian Hebrews 12 commands us not to despise God's chastening. That's the, that's the context of Hebrews 12. It's not about parents. It's about God. The principles we have drawn out today are little more, if I did my job correctly, than the application of God's dealings with his children into my life and your life. As such, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you are a child of God, then what we've explained today that I've exhorted you to do for your children is what God is doing for you today.
And the question I have for you today is what kind of a child are you? Are you resistant to God's corrections and punishments? Are you taking advantage of God's long-suffering, pushing him to his limits? He's been clear in his expectations. We have a really big book of those. He's been consistent in his discipline because he's kind of perfect. But are you resenting him for doing what he said he would do for you? Are you living in sorrow, not joy? In anxiety, not peace. In anger, not love. In self-indulgence, not temperance. And then you wonder why you aren't experiencing God's blessed and then God's best for you, and then you blame God. Do you recall God's loving rebukes? And when you recall them, when you see them, do you recoil at them? Do you harden yourself against the principles which He has taught you for your best good? When a brother or sister in Christ says, hey, I just noticed that you seem to be struggling in this area or I saw this thing and I'm concerned or Pastor Wickler gets up and preaches something and you walk away saying, why was he preaching directly to me? And you harden yourself against the principles which have been taught unto you. Rejecting God's good intentions toward you. Proven by Christ's work on the cross. Again, we'll talk more about that next week. Don't despise the chastening hand of the Lord, Christian. When you feel that, that feeling of insufficiency as it relates to your relationship with God, it's not a pleasant feeling when I feel like I've done something wrong or I've fallen short of what I ought to be doing, especially if I did it in front of others. But you know what? That's a part of the plan. It's a part of the process. And if I harden my heart to that, simply say, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't do anything wrong. I didn't. And then we blame everyone else and everything else. And we get resentful at God for the ch- his chastening hand upon us. We're a child resisting the loving hand of the parent, trying to turn his child into maturity. Don't be that child. The complication of being an earthly parent is that we are so very flawed. All of our attempts to lead our children into God's design are marred by the fact that we have our own sinful tendencies to work through. We have our bad days. We get frustrated. We lose our perspective. We get tired. We get confused. We misunderstand. We, we, all of those things. But God is our Father. He doesn't have bad days. His way is wholly trustworthy to work in us what He has determined to accomplish if only we will let Him. So the question is this, are you allowing your Heavenly Father to do the work that He desires to do in you today? Are you submitted to the will of God as a loving Father for you, or are you resisting? Are you fighting back? Are you hardening your heart because of your pride or your selfishness or your um, fear that, that you will be rejected? But if you are a parent or if you know parents, you know enough to know just how much parents love their children. Now impose that upon God and then multiply it by about a thousandfold. Does God really love me that much? He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for you. He can't do much more to show you how much he loves you. He can't, on the authority of God's word, he can't do anything more than what he has done to show you how much he loves you. Are you resisting him to your hurt?
despising his correction and so stunting your spiritual growth? What kind of child are you being for your Heavenly Father? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.